Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. What you may or may not know when you clicked start today was that this is our official 50th episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. So, yay! Very cool. Very, very cool. And uh, Jennifer and I will be doing a 50 episode retrospective about the 50 episodes, but that's not today's episode. Today's episode, you probably already know, is The White Tiger. I'm very excited about that. But real quick, we have a couple of announcements before we get into that. As you know, we have a website at kmmamedia.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. There's also a tab right at the top of kmmamedia.com. And you can search bar us pages and popcorn podcast. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. That's the places where we're at. And we're on Patreon. And you can support us by becoming a patron or by rating and reviewing us, or by sharing us on social media, or by telling your friends to subscribe, or by going and filling out our listener feedback survey. That's right. We have a listener feedback survey. It's very cool. We want to hear from you. We want to know what we're doing that works. We want to know what we're doing that doesn't work. Too long recaps? Two short recaps. Are the recaps okay? Are they just right? Are they like a baby bear? What what are how do you feel about the recaps? How do you feel about well all sorts of stuff? Anyways, it's all there on the listener feedback survey, which you can find all over our social media. You're also welcome to send us an email at pages and popcorn podcast at gmail.com or to show up to our monthly pop-in events, which is the final Monday of every month on Zoom, where you can see our beautiful faces and hear our beautiful voices and tell us all your beautiful thoughts about our beautiful podcast. And this episode is coming out on the last Monday of the month, which means that that pop-in event is tonight. So (laughs) yes, but if you miss it because you don't listen to this on the day it comes out, which is fair, uh, make sure you set it on your calendar for the end of April, the last Monday of the month in April, which I believe will be the 26th. We will be in Zoom at seven o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Okay, that's the end of my spiel, I think. Do you have any anything you want to spiel, Jennifer? Nothing? <laughs> nope. Deer in the headlights look over there. <laughs> um, I think we're giving away some stuff. We are giving away some stuff. Um, so I've got this awesome, here, actually, I'm going to show you. Look at this. Look at this, baby. This, that is very cool. This is a... For those of you who do not get the video cast because we actually don't do one, it is a canvas tote with the Pages and Popcorn podcast and our logo on it. And it's very, very cool looking. It is very cool looking. We also have, I know this is radio, right? But these very awesome 
stickers. And it, Neat. it says, <laughs> never judge a book by its movie. Judge them both. <laughs> so I thought that was cute. Got these stickers to give away. And that bag is going to be filled with loot, too, as that's a giveaway. And the way that you can win that bag, well, there's lots, there's, there's several ways that you can enter to win. And all of that is on our social media. So you have until the 6th of April, which means you have a week if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, or if you're one of our patrons and you're listening to it a little bit early, because that's that's what patrons get. They get to listen to it early. Anyways, yeah, I just totally stole your spiel and made it my own. Sorry. Well, you're the one with all the info and knowledge. I do have all I, the info I'm knowledge. just here for the voice. <laughs> Yesterday, I was wearing one of our sweatshirts, actually. We have sweatshirts in our shop that says, but did you, did you even read the book? Which is a great sweatshirt. And it's super soft. And I totally meant to wear it again today so that you could see it and it would be videoed here. But it needed to be washed because I wore it around a bonfire and it smelled a lot like delicious, delicious, smoky smell, which I don't mind for a couple of days. But then I'm like, at this point, it's getting a little ripe. So it's in the wash, but I will have it clean and I will wear it tonight for those of you who are going to come or you know whenever the, the date is but i'm going to wear it to, to the next pages and popcorn pop-in event yay for swag mm -hmm. okay but you probably clicked to listen to us talk about the white tiger so that's what we're gonna do The White Tiger is the debut novel by Indian author Arvind Adiga. It was first published in 2008 and won the 40th Man Booker Prize in the same year. And then it was made into a Netflix movie that came out in January 2021, this very year. And I saw the preview for it in February 2021. And then I sent you a message and was like, we have to do this book. And you were like, okay. And here we are. So... One of the feedback things that I have gotten so far from our listener feedback surveys is that sometimes my recaps are very long and people are opting in to listen to an episode because they've already read the book or seen the movie. So they don't necessarily need the recaps. Uh, somebody said I should put the timestamp of when the recap begins and ends so people could skip it if they want, which I may or may not do. That seems like a lot of work that I may or may not want to do, but we'll see. So I'm just going to simplify things this time and say that I'm only going to talk from podcast where we half ass it. Hey, no, no, no. We do a lot more editing and stuff than some people. We do stuff. It's just, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I could do that and put it in the show notes. I don't know. It Okay. Well, okay. Here's the thing, because sometimes what I choose to put in the recap, I reference directly. And so I don't know. Also, I've also gotten feedback that says that my recaps are funny and people like my little snark and that's why they listen. So I don't want to cut them out completely. I guess making the option. Okay, Leah, I quite enjoy your snark. Oh, well, thank you. That's, that's convenient since we do this together. <laughs> um, but what I am going to do is I'm going to say that today, this book and movie are so much the same that I'm really only going to recap once. It's a it's a book and movie recap combo. It's basically the book. And then at the end, I'm going to make my little, here are a couple things they changed in the movie. But the movie was so very, very close to the book that I don't even feel like we need two recaps. So if you're planning on skipping, check the show notes maybe, or just know that I'm only going to recap a little bit. And I and I did kind of get this from Wikipedia with a little bit of uh, Kalia flavor sprinkled in. So here we go. Do, 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 do. Balram Helwai narrates his life in a letter written in seven consecutive nights and addressed to the Chinese premier. 
In his letter, Balram explains that he, the son of a rickshaw puller, escaped a life of servitude to become a successful businessman, an entrepreneur, and he is going to share with the premier how this happened as a case study in entrepreneurship in India so that the premier will understand India as a whole through Balram's experiences. So he starts off by saying that he was born in a rural village in the Gaia district where he lived with his grandmother, his parents, his brothers, his extended family. He was a smart child but was forced to leave school in order to help pay for his cousin's dowry and he begins to work in the tea shop with his brother. While working, he begins to learn about India's government and economy from the customers' conversations. He describes himself as a bad servant, but a good listener, and he decides at one point to become a driver as a way of getting away from this particular type of poverty. After learning how to drive, he finds a job driving for Ashok, the son of one of his village's landlords. And he eventually moves to the town where his landlord lives in their kind of palatial estate sort of thing. And he becomes a fixture in the house, servant number two to servant number one. But then he becomes servant number one of driving when he outs his servant number one competitor, who is secretly a Muslim because landlords hate Muslims. So he also stops sending money home to his family, and he disrespects his grandmother during a visit back to his village. Eventually, they move to New Delhi with Ashok and his wife, Pinky Madam. Throughout their time in Delhi, Balram is exposed to extensive corruption, especially in the government. People are paying each other off over and over and over again. In Delhi, the contrast between the poor and the wealthy is made even more evident by their proximity to one another. People sleeping on the sidewalks right in front of the big palatial estates. One night, Pinky Madam takes the wheel from Balram and, while drunk, hits something in the road, and then they drive away. We're left to assume that she has killed a child, although in the book it's not 100% clear, in the movie it is 100% clear. Ashok's family puts pressure on Balram to confess that he was the one who was driving and he'd been driving alone, and he does. He signs this confection, and then they protect him by not having him turned in, but they will always have this to lord over him. Ashok becomes increasingly involved in bribing the government officials for the benefit of his family and their coal business. Pinky eventually leaves Ashok and gives Balram a bunch of money right before she goes. She's very guilty and upset about the whole situation. And he spends most of that money on a blonde sex worker. Balram then decides that killing Ashok is the only way to escape India's rooster coop. This is Balram's metaphor for describing the oppression of India's poor, because just as roosters in a coop in the market watch themselves get slaughtered one by one, but are unable and unwilling to break out of their cage. Similarly, Ashok is portrayed as being trapped in the metaphorical rooster coop. His family controls what he does, and society dictates how he acts, and Balram is also trapped in the rooster coop because there's a hierarchy of servants. No servant will let another servant get away or move up the hierarchical ladder. And also all of the servants are in fear of their family's lives because the masters know where your family is at all times. So if Balram were to be naughty, disrespectful, anything, his family could be, well, they could be shunned by their village, they could be tortured, or they could be straight up all murdered. So that is what keeps the roosters in their coops.
Before Belram can carry out his evil plan to murder Ashok and steal his money, his family sends him a nephew and threatens to tell on him because remember, he has not been sending any money home. And they're like, yo, here, train your nephew. And also you're going to have to get married. This is all very triggering because he remembers about the whole dowry situation and how that ruined his chance for education. Plus that'll like ensnare him even more into his family and their futures will all be tied together. This is the noose tightening around Balram's throat. So he puts his plan into motion. He kills Ashok. He bludgeons him with the bottle and then slits his throat. And he steals a large bribe that Ashok was carrying with him. Balram moves to Bangalore, and yes, he does take his nephew with him, where he, in turn, bribes the police in order to start his very own taxi business. Just like Ashok, Balram pays off a family whose son, one of his taxi drivers, has hit and killed. Balram explains that his own family was almost certainly killed by Ashok's relatives in retribution for his murder, but he's decided not to care. At the end of the novel, he rationalizes his actions and considers that his freedom is worth the lives of his entire family and of Ashok. And then he ends the letter. There's a couple differences. In the movie, Balram actually meets the premiere, but the premiere kind of brushes him off. In the book, he doesn't actually. It's just the letters. In the movie, the, it's set a few years later. The movie gives us a timestamp of 2010. In the movie, Pinky Madam has a bit more to do. She talks more to Balram about his situation etc. In the book, Balram sees his mother die young and her death and the fire pyre and such is very traumatic for him. And then his dad dies in a hospital of tuberculosis, not even being seen by the doctor. In the movie, the mother is completely omitted. His father still dies in the hospital of tuberculosis and it is his fire pyre that is traumatic for Balram. The book also deals more with the dowry being the reason that Balram has to quit school and how marriage traps everyone, including the men. It really lays on the whole family obligations thicker than in the movie. It was a little bit more like, oh, father owes this man money. Therefore, you need to work at the tea shop, uh, basically breaking up coal chunks and being a servant. That's why he had to get out of school. Where the movie really deviates, though, is in developing Ashok and Balram's relationship. Unlike the book, the movie has them becoming something close to buddies. As Ashok tells Balram not to call him sir or master, they're seen playing video games together and they jam to music. Uh, The film is a little bit more heavily highlighting of the homoerotic tones between the two that underline the story. In both book and film, current day Balram refers to Ashok occasionally as his ex And there's a little bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more, but it's not very explicit in either one. So those are the main differences. And that is the end of my recap. Short and sweet. Short and sweet. Just like me. Actually, I'm I'm not actually short and only seldom sweet. I was going to say. Hey, (laughs) I am perfectly average and a little, actually, you know what? Nothing. There's nothing I can say now that won't either sound like I'm complimenting myself or disparaging myself. And I probably just taste like coffee and gum. So there we go. I don't even know where to start. This is um, quite the novel. It is quite the novel. I, okay. You know how sometimes you read a book and you're like, well, that was interesting. And then sometimes you're like, oh my God, now I want to do research. This was a, oh my God, I want to do research novel. I was like, because he talks about in the book and he says this also in the movie in 1947, up until 1947, there was like a thousand casts in India. And it was like your last name and you're a sweet maker and you're a rickshaw puller and you're this and you're that. And that's like all you were, boom, done. And 
when I was in school in the 80s and the 90s, I remember being told that that was like still the way it was, but apparently not. No, no. In 1947, when the British left, everything kind of went cuttywampus. There was a void to be filled. I mean, you know, nature powers a vacuum. So like people filled the void and then it was became much more about growing and changing and, and entrepreneurship and doing things. And so even though Balram is of the cast of sweet makers, people who make like candy and stuff. He, his father was a rickshaw puller and then he worked at a tea shop and then eventually became a driver. So like, there is like this, this kind of mobility, but it's not, it's not a uh, like complete upward mobility. It's just like, it's just a little bit different, but there's, there's still definitely a class system, even though it's not technically as harsh about the caste system it's a little bit like you got rid of slavery but you still have a lot of racist laws you know there's a difference between de jure and de facto segregation right so even though they get rid of the caste system the caste system is implicitly still there it's just more of a class system and it's very and he so he even talks about it he's like there's two there there are two castes now there's like the light and the dark there's like the interior and the exterior. There's the big bellied men who are like full of passion and gumption. And then the small bellied men who are the poor and like, they don't know what to do. And, and it's, it's really, it's interesting. And like the whole servant culture is, is fascinating. He talks in the book a little bit about how like, well, you know, I, I admire you China because you were, you know, like you don't want to be anybody's servants. Uh, there's only three countries in the whole world that were never servants to another country, and they are China, Afghanistan, and Abyssinia. Abyssinia? I don't even know the country of... Okay, so Abyssinia is Ethiopia. Ah, okay, Ethiopia. But it's like formerly Abyssinia, so it's like a long time ago. Okay, so basically China, Afghanistan, and modern-day Ethiopia. These are the only three countries I admire, he says. He has a lot to say. This man is a very opinionated man. <laughs> Some of his opinions are a little crackpot. But I just, I thought that was interesting. I was thinking, yeah, you know, it's interesting about, because we do have this, this like servant culture in British. And maybe it's because I've been watching Rebecca and, you know, Downton Abbey and other things, this upstairs, downstairs. And we've got that kind of servant culture and we have it in India, but it's like way more extreme and so then I wanted to like read a whole bunch about servant culture in India, which there are lots of links. They are in our show notes at our website on the blog post for this episode. You have to go check them out. But anyways, that, that it was just, I'm, I'm jumping around, but you have a lot to say and it's, you need to focus. I do. I do need to focus. Okay. Um, well, we're already talking about servants. Let's talk about servants. Can we talk about servants? Servant culture. We can talk about servants. Okay. That's a major theme here. His, his rooster coop is is a theme that gets carried through and i kind of already explained it a little bit in the recap in case you didn't skip my recap just in case you didn't i'm not going to say it again i'm going to make you go back and listen if you skipped so there (laughs) (laughs) there are some really good visuals and metaphors and lines in this and that's one of them was the rooster coop it kind of reminds me a little bit of um how science of the lambs capitalized on you know the screaming lambs and what that meant so yeah, you, just because Kaylee is being passive aggressive, I won't be the rooster coop. They watch their fellows being butchered in front of them, but they don't fight. Yeah, that is the metaphor for classism. I mean, okay, it sounds very profound, and it and it is very visual. It's, and in the movie too, they like literally show it. But I mean, roosters are well, they're 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 chickens. They're not smart creatures, and they. Okay, so there's two things. One is, do they care? Because chickens like will eat things that are not 
you would think, oh God, that chicken's not going to eat that. Yeah, they'll eat their own eggs. Yes. Okay. So I, they may not care that they're fellow chickens. And I don't think that there's tribalism in the chicken coop. Like they're not like, oh, we're a family unit. Like that's, 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 that's not what they are. So the, I don't think that there's a higher enough intelligence maybe of chickens. Now crows, on the other hand, might hold some grudges and stuff. And I'll, I'll obviously. You might be reading a little too much. Into no, no. I, what I'm saying is that, that there's two things. There's like, are they smart enough to fight? And then what's the point? because they have absolutely no control. And I think that, that that's not reading in. I think he literally is saying the poor people in India, this is his words, not mine. The poor people, this class of people, they are too stupid to fight. And if they try, it's not gonna work. So why bother trying? That he is very okay, yes, in that of, sense, yes. of them. And so comparing them to these dumb animals is, is I mean, it's, it's exactly what he would say. Much goes into why he's the white tiger. He's the one who could, who has the ambition right because white tiger is born only once every so often and it's you know very rare and so when he was a kid in school and and he was the, one of the only kids who knew how to read and they were like oh you're like a white tiger because you're special and he was like yeah i am i'm totally fucking special now i have to wonder if nobody had told him that he was the white tiger and special would he have wanted to like would he have fought so much to go on you know, or would he have just accepted? Yeah. And then that gets me into thinking about like, we tell kids that they're special because we want to encourage them. But if nobody ever tells you you're, you're smart or you're special, like maybe you don't ever think that. I don't, so that was kind of an interesting thing too. Like how much is he a white tiger and how much is he a white tiger because someone told him that he, he could be a white tiger. So people tell your kids they're special so that they grow up, but, but not, not grow up and murder people. I mean, that is a big deal. And how many servants do rebel like he does? And he has that whole thing too. He's like, servants never steal. Servants are so good because it wouldn't even occur to them to steal or to do these things. Um, you know, they're, they're very trustworthy. Is it because they're all spiritual? No, 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 no. It's because they're, in his words, they're too stupid. They're just too cowed and they just, they won't do it. And then literally a couple chapters later, he's like, here are all the ways the servants steal from their masters. We can steal petrol out of their car and we can take extra taxi rides and we can, you know, tell them that we need to fix the car. And so like, obviously servants steal, yeah, right? There's a whole system of fake invoices. Yes. How he uses the car to pick up people to taxi them around. So he's, he's hypocritical in that, in that he's saying, oh no, these people are so stupid. They've never fight back. And then he himself that is after his awakening though his his disillusionment moment but but because he's telling us the story reliable narrator going on yes i was going to say that because he's telling us in the it, from the present death he's telling us about the past so he's already kind of had his awakening when he's making these days i just he's not he's very um He's not as introspective as you might imagine for somebody who's being so navel gazy. You know, he's got these opinions about how the world works, but he is, like you just said, not a very reliable narrator in terms of, of actually thinking it through in some ways. Yeah, he's, um, his intelligence is more on the level of cunning. Yes, and conniving. Very, very, very true. Which, I mean, those are the tools he has to work with, right? So it, it's kind of actually I mean scary to think of what he would have done if he'd been... <laughs> And he talks about that dichotomy of being absolutely sincere and lying at the same time. Because mm -hmm. you see him doing that with his masters. Oh, if you want, I'll get all the internets, you know, down at the store, which is a really funny line. And then he's like, oh, yeah, the computer is hung out with the goats. He's like, oh, I said something wrong. 
but he'll say it absolutely sincerely. Yeah. Yeah. That basically I'm going to say whatever I think I need, you want me to say, you know, oh, do you cook? Of course I cook. Do you do this? Of course I do that. Do you know how to drive? Of course I know how to drive, you know, like, because yeah, definitely the, the lying to the masters. Oh, I couldn't possibly take money. You're like my mother and my father. I couldn't take money from you. And then he's like, you know, obviously that's the game he has to play. That is exactly it. The game he has to play. And there's so many good lines. And one of them in particular, we was talking about like, do we love our masters, you know, or do we loathe them? Which, what is the thing? Is it the loathing hidden by love or is it the love hidden by loathing? And it's, it's, it's really good. It's really well written. This character is fascinating. So I will admit that when you first had me read this, it, it felt a lot like an English class where it's like, oh, I'm reading this because it's big L literature. And I'm going to enjoy it just as much as when I was forced to read these for lit classes. But it is a much more engaging novel than I thought at yeah. first blush. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> it, it definitely has a lot of meat on it because it could very easily just be a surface story of like, oh, and then I overcame adversity and I blah, 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 blah. But because he's got all these little nuggets and kernels of these really interesting things and because he's struggling with these bigger concepts, they, it's very meaty in that, in that way. It does make me wonder what he would have made of a formal education. Right. Well, and you know, if he'd had different opportunities because he has this whole point about how like his boss, his master has all these opportunities. And so because he has so many opportunities, he can totally squander them, right? Where Balram doesn't have lots of opportunities. So he feels like if he's given an opportunity, he has to take it, even if it's not a good opportunity or like your ideal situation or whatever. And then he would be stupid to not do that, you know? which is, is fair, right? You know, that like who, who has the opportunities and who doesn't. So there was a reason why the author chose for him to be a chauffeur. Uh, in an interview, he talks about that and said that it's putting the slave or servant master relationship and flipping it because while he's the driver, he's the active participant. The rest of them are passive. That's very interesting. Yeah. And, and I mean, it wasn't just driving. He was obviously, he had to do other stuff around the house, massaging feet and cooking and cleaning and all, you know. That's kind of a big deal too. Like massaging a person's feet is like, like it's really common up until recently. Like you wouldn't have baths because if you put your body in the water, it's the same that your feet are in. You're just as dirty as your feet and your feet are the dirtiest part of you. Like if you want to insult somebody, you point your foot at them. Yeah. It, so for him to touch like another person's foot it's it's deeply humiliating right well and then like that's how you prostrate yourself in front of somebody in a lot of countries is by touching their feet or kissing their feet or or whatever and i mean it goes all the way back to like biblical times right of like Mm -hmm. like the whole point of the story of jesus washing the disciples feet is because that is like the lowest base level servant slave thing you know nobody nobody of decent breeding would have to do that you know kind of a thing but he has like this line where he washes his hands for 10 minutes and he just can't psychologically. And we know it's a psychological thing. After you wash mm-hmm. your hands for 10 minutes, your skin is completely off. Right. But like, it's, he still smelt like the feet, you know, because yeah. it was, it was that. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And, and, it, and being just, I mean, it's, it's, we have such a different concept of servants. Like in, in America, we have, slavery where we had slavery and now we have you know jim crow and and segregation and a whole bunch of bad shit like totally not this don't don't take this wrong way 
that is like the context that you and I have grown up here in America. And then we, we know about like the big houses, like I said, Downton Abbey, you know, the servants classes and then this and that and stuff. And you can think about like, okay, maybe like Roman history with the slaves and this and that, but like Indian slave culture or servant culture is so profoundly different. And I was reading this really interesting article about how it's less than human. It's less than pieces of furniture. They just don't exist unless they're being, they're actively serving you at that time, but they're completely ignored. And, and I thought that the book and the movie did a really good job of showing that, like, they just didn't even think of him as a person, you know, as a, as anything, but then, but then, but then just like, you know, and you can say in, in, the, in the South, we have the, the slavery of an American and like they were not seen as humans. And, and there's a whole thing about that. They were animals and blah, blah, blah. But nobody, the, the slave owners in the South weren't being like, but I'm your family and I love you. And, you know, like they're, you know, all of that stuff. It, it, so it's, it's a kind of a different type of servant master relationship where there's like this whole thing about loving the person too. And, and it seems like loyalty is, is a form of violence towards these people because when Ashok gets really mad at him, it's because he somehow betrayed Ashok by taking Pinky Madam to the, to the airport and letting, you know, and helping her leave, even though that's technically his job, but Ashok takes it very personally. Like you've betrayed me by, by letting my wife leave, you know, by helping her in this way. And, and that, that implied idea of loyalty that you don't exist outside of the needs of your master. is just, oh my God, it's so profoundly disturbing. So it reminded me of Jane Eyre where Charlotte Bronte was, had these experiences as a governess where she's both a servant and part of the family and how that tension gets sort of built up and, and pressurized. And it's a very strange sort of relationship. Yeah. No, it, it is. It is very interesting, you know, uh, this this idea of what is family and what isn't. And then again, what you have is this idea that if you mess up, your family is going to get it. Your family that is, you know, miles and miles and miles away in their village could be, you know, shunned. Word could get back to the village, but they could also just be straight up murdered for your bad actions. This was explicit in the movie. They were killed. They, they show images of it that are his imagination, but then he's reading a newspaper article of 17 people died yeah. on this one family. And then it was that, that was also in the book too, where he starts to read an article. And it's like 17 people and one family killed in Northern part. And he just chooses to not finish reading the article. He's going to just detach himself because that's probably his family. He doesn't really want to know he's made his internal peace with it, you know? Um, and he says that it was a small price to pay for my freedom, their deaths. And oh my God, it's so creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cold-blooded. So that brings us to sort of the issue with family and loyalty. Mm -hmm. So we have servant loyalty where he's like, oh, I'm part of the family. I think of you as mama and papa, even though he's having these very um, erotic feelings towards his mama. Yeah, well, yes. Again, she's very westernized. She's from New York. She wears the short skirts. Her breasts are being displayed somewhat yeah and and it's very troublesome for him well that first meeting was so well done in the movie where it was just awkward she's touching his back he's just like what the hell is this woman doing to me yes and her shoulders are bare i mean it's just it's a whole it's a whole thing but there's a lot of like his autonomy he has no autonomy at different mm -hmm. points like somebody's punching his or 
pinching his nipples to see his fitness and she's rubbing his back and she's doing all this weird stuff then putting their legs on him because he's just a piece of furniture or you know all sorts of yeah he's just he's just a prop and then they 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 fight about things and then they use him as a proxy, you know, um, like he's asked to perform sometimes, like ask him questions so that they can have these intellectual conversations about the state of India and stuff. But you were talking more about like, so that's like the servant family, but then his own family dynamics were very interesting too. And I, I want to make sure we, we get to what you're going to say about that. Yeah. So what do you think about the grandmother? Is she a pariah? A pariah? Because you know, for her investment into his future, first off, he takes his, in the movie, she does this um, it more explicitly again. She takes his future away from him from being educated and forces him to work in a tea shop. You know, it's the grandmother's decision. And then she allows him to have this driver's license and get this driver's training and the expectation that he's going to pay them interest over time for that. So, well, at least pay something back, like return, you know, give the family some money because, and, and I want to be very clear here because when they say working in a tea shop, like I thought, oh, like a waiter. No, no. He's like crushing coal and sweeping the floor. Like this is not a, a barista kind of a thing. So it's, it's hardcore bad labor that's happening, but yes, um, he, he's taken out of school because of the dowry, which trap, you know, the family has to pay the dowry. And so it's this huge, uh, it's a financial burden, yeah. but they do it so that then the, the, the lines of loyalty and interdependentness are, are solidified, right? And then you have to work that off. Okay. Oh, just going to say, because I've had some of this experience with a similar culture that I lived with for a while, you can't not do that for weddings. It is expectation. Marriages cost a huge amount. It's like buying a house. Yeah. And it's part of the culture. Yeah, for sure. And like, so there's no way around it. Right. And that starts, he's, he's angry about that. So he's, he's angry that he has his education and his possible future, even though he's the white tiger is taken away because of this familial obligation in terms of this marriage stuff. And then he wants, yeah, he wants to learn how to drive. He wants to better himself. And the only way he gets to do that is by promising that he will take care of his family once he has some money, et cetera, which he does not do. Well, he does At originally. All. So to put this in context, the amount of money he was getting every week is worth like $37 a month. That's what it translates to. And he sent almost everything. He kept like 10% for himself. At first. At first. But and once they to moved Delhi, to New Delhi, yeah. then not so much anymore over there. Yeah. He starts to get corrupted by the big, quote unquote, big, big city. But after two months, that that, that he he would have had it paid but it's a continuing thing. You're expected to support your family and beggar yourself. Yeah, for life, basically. And then, you know, to to then get married and and then have there be more of those, uh, that, that web of interconnectedness and, and responsibility, you know, to the, to the group and stuff. And he talks about how he's seen his brother got trapped basically and can't do anything now because now he has a wife and kids and blah, 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 blah. You know, this is, this is my... Every episode, I have to feel like I have to say the patriarchy hurts everyone, <laughs> not just women, men too. Yeah, so, and in this case, boo. it is the grandma who's doing a lot of the manipulating. Right. But I mean, sure. 
someone's got to do if it wasn't the grandma i'd be the grandma's like you know what i mean like i i don't see her as a pariah at all i see her as like the head of the family who's like look this is how it works you know and then she's going to work within the system like you married then you're going to be connected and you're going to do this and you're going to send money home and we're going to continue to exist in this feeble little way that we possibly can of course right people work within the systems that they have yeah and so this is why it's like noted that he disrespects his grandmother. Mm-hmm. And this is where I, I sort of wonder about the author. So the author is Indian born, was raised, uh, his childhood was in India, and then he was educated in England and went to Columbia University. So a lot of this feels like a westernized view of India. So, and that's okay. getting a little tricky. I have a question for you. Do you think that people should only write about their own experiences? Did you read that uh, interview with the author? Yes, I did. Okay, so there's an interview in The Guardian that's actually quite good. Uh, And he talks about that because he doesn't have those experiences. He was never poor. He was the child of a physician, I believe. And I want to say so. Yeah, and this gets into some really good arguments of, you know, stay in your own lane, write with respect to who you're writing about. You only write from your own perspective because if so, it's going to be a very, very boring world full of English professors who want to have affairs. And every novel will be that. I I feel like part of the novelist's job is to write outside of their own experience. I, I that's what I think. I but I am also much more of a de- let's deconstruction it. Let's, let's it, divorce the author from the work in a lot of ways. So that's where I. But at the same time, you do see a lot of authors who get it wrong. That may be, but I I don't feel like it's a fair comparison. I also feel like what he's talking about and like shedding light on on a part of of a culture that doesn't really get talked about as much or shown as much is valid and important and you don't have to have lived that experience in order to talk about it it's not like he was never in india it's not like i wrote this and just made it up based on like thoughts i had and like you know maybe watching a movie he he did lived there he did travel there he did talk to people there um so it it to me it it does not bring bad but there is definitely controversy about it and there's another article that i will also link to about people talking about how they feel the poor is portrayed and whether or not this is poverty porn or whether it's a it's a helpful thing poverty porn so yeah i've asked this question before of uh sort of marginalized group do you prefer having no representation over bad representation but i don't think that this is bad representation no but and and there's there's plenty of people who are of that population who i'm agreeing with they said it first so like they don't think it's bad representation so i i I feel like we're we're changing the topic of conversation when we don't we don't need to be talking about because that I, I am reframing this a little bit in an unfair way where I'm saying it's bad reputation where it might not be, but he is speaking as an outsider and as an outsider, it's kind of questionable because he doesn't have those exact experiences. See, and I, I just fundamentally disagree with that entire sentence that you said. Well, I'm not saying that that's how I believe um, because I'll write characters, no, I'll write from a male perspective because, but we female writers who can't write female characters all the time. Sure. So there's a matter of like, you know, are you being sensitive enough to write from this perspective that is not your own? You need to get a ghostwriter every once in a while or somebody to go, hey. And I I see that. I just, I'm saying that in this case, I think he did a fine job. I think that 
his point about a novelist being able should be able to write outside of their experience is super valid and and I think we need stuff that sometimes insiders can't talk as honestly about something because either they are in the rooster coop and don't have the words or the way to talk about it or they don't have like a wider perspective so they don't have anything to compare it to and so it's in a vacuum and so sometimes you do need that outsider to come in and say okay this is what i'm seeing this is how it's looking to me and and he's not coming across as like balram is not a sympathetic this isn't slumdog millionaire yeah okay this is, this is not like <laughs> right fantastical thing we're like oh my god it's so wonderful blah 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 and this isn't bollywood this is this is is a, a complicated character who's you're not really root you can root for but you're not be okay with what he does it's complicated and i think he does a good job of giving us stuff to think about and talk about while raising important social issues that might not have gotten raised if he hadn't written this book well yeah i agree with you on this uh you know you wouldn't have any speculative fiction if you didn't have people who were willing to write outside of their comfort zone. I'm fine with that. I worry a little bit about representation when it's real life people. I think he did a good job in this. There are hints that, oh, this is not quite the voice of the the person that he's writing, but it's forgivable. And I think that by making Balram be not he's not cartoony at all but he does have these little crackpot things where he's like western culture is gonna die because everyone's like gay and they're, they're rotting their brains with cell phones you know and like blah 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 like he's got a couple of random assertions and you're like mm, i don't know man which which kind of lends he's like a real character yeah. he's not you know like this paradigm of virtue or anything and i think that that it, kind of if, if you're going to say that there was a um, a worry then that kind of saves it from becoming that i would say that the book is showing what the author is concerned about without the narrator being his mouthpiece yeah yeah i think that's fair and i will say like i read behind the beautiful forevers i think yep, we've read it in book, book club, club or maybe yeah and that that book was very important and it was influential and it made a lot of good points blah 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 but you know who's going to read books like Behind the Beautiful Forevers are book clubs of like lefty people like us who are like, I want to be educated about something in its nonfiction. This is a fiction book that's going to reach a lot more people. And then they make it into a freaking Netflix movie. It's going to reach a lot more people. And it's not. And so this is where I could almost say your, your, the controversy is valid. It's not for people in India, right? This movie and this book is not for those people like Netflix is one of the most expensive streaming services. So like the people in India who, who they're not going to be able to even watch this. They might not be able to even read the book, but it, it helps Westernized or the other parts of the world kind of have a better idea. So is that valid? I think so. I, I mean, I'm certainly glad to have read this and to have more knowledge and ha then be totally lost in the, in the Wikipedia rabbit holes of British imperialism in India and, you know, and all kinds of interesting historical things that, that I just, it somehow didn't get in school. So I do think that there's, there's value in stuff like this, even if it's not for the audience that it's written about. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think we also see this uh, from legacy projects, you know, maybe 40 years ago, a writer wrote about, okay, at the time this was necessary to write, their eyes were watching God. I think we had this conversation where, well, it had to be written at that time so that we could progress to move to more authentic pieces. Exposure is good. Yeah. And he's not a hero. I think that's important too. Because you, you certainly don't want to be like, be like this guy. 
kill your master. <laughs> you know, at the same time, there's a little part of me that's like, burn it all down, kill the masters of capitalism. Well, but I can say that in my very comfortable position of like, I'm going to get a stimulus check and we, you know, can pay our bills and blah, blah, blah. So I, I did read a little snarky line about that. Of So he's writing these letters to a Chinese premier and say, well, this is how I became an entrepreneur. And it's like, uh, how many people are going to go that route? Not the recommended yeah. way to success. So that also brings to light because we are dealing with an unprecedented amount of very, very super heavily wealthy people that didn't used to exist. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's kind of the idea of the self-made man and a lot of these super trillionaires are not really self-made in a lot of ways. They did have help here, whereas Balram, you know, made his own way. You know, it's through cunning, it's through manipulation, um, it's through some very, very ruthless choices. But I also, you know, come up with this question of, well, why does this, you know, mega trillionaire not pay his workers better? If he was that person who would pay his workers better, he wouldn't be that person. Right. So, yeah, yeah you know, if, if this person, if Balram wasn't ruthless, but my God, the cost of that. Well, and it's interesting because it starts off with, uh, the the other servant. He even says, like, is there any other hatred that's equal to the hatred of servant number two to servant number one? You know, and it's not even like I hate my master at that point. It was like I hate this guy who's better, you know, who's a higher level than me. I want to be the top of my hierarchical structure. Can't not even conceiving of not being in this little hierarchical structure, but I just want to be that guy. Then outing him as a as a Muslim, and he he has a moment of of feeling bad. And I mean, he in the book and the movie both. That's the thing. He's like he's like I kind of regret doing this. I have to tell you about something that makes me kind of sad to think about. That he outed this guy because of his his religion. He's like you know he feels bad for him. He's like how sad is it that he had to hide his religion? You know for this job for a job. You know blah 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 to to live in poverty. Okay. <laughs> does not seem to feel the same guilt at all for the apps like the straight up murder <laughs> like at that point he's like this guy fucking deserves it because because <laughs> well yeah i mean if you're working for a company do you hate the the ceo or do you hate your manager you know the, the person <laughs> that's the most immediate is the one that gets your attention uh yeah yeah that's, it's that's just like one level of privilege that's all you need one level up Mm -hmm. one big bag of money yeah so when i was reading that i was like how was he able to hide that you know he was during ramadan for so many years but so be it you know i'll, I'll just take the story as it is um well and okay i i thought of that okay and here's the thing the the people in the family the masters they're not going to notice or care so it's the other servants right and while there may or may not have been uh, like struggle between like the gate guy, the, the, the guy from Nepal. Who, in multiple ways. Right, right. Definitely. And whatever other servants, but there was no other driver who was actively gunning for the Muslim man's job. It wasn't until he showed up. So what my impression was that some of those other people might've known and either had their own secrets or didn't care enough you know, because if they got rid of this guy, then they might have to do that work. And like, if they might see themselves as being above being a driver slash foot massager person, you know what I mean? So they're going to keep that guy in his position. And it wasn't until Balram showed up and he wanted that guy's job that then, you know, he was able to, to manipulate his way into it or, you know, by, by outing him. That's, that, that's how I took it. Your mileage will vary, but yeah. Yeah. The infighting, you know, instead of bonding together, it's tearing each other apart but I get the necessity of it. Yeah. 
Uh, what do you think about his metaphor of the zoo? So while there's British colonialism, you know, all the animals are separated, now they're unleashed, they're all fighting each other, and it's a big, huge, ugly mess. Interesting. It's like that um, that self-hatred thing of like, again, he sees himself and the people like him as animals, but he's the white tiger. So he's, you know, a little bit cut above all the other animals. I, what I found interesting about like not the zoo metaphor, but the zoo itself, when he goes to the zoo with his nephew towards the end of the book and he sees the white tiger and it's pacing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he says it's hypnotizing itself so that it can stand the cage. And like the fact that he's, he's pointing that out because that's what, you know, basically the servant class is doing. They're focusing on this, that, or the other, they're hypnotizing themselves so that they can continue to exist within this cage and not feel the need to escape. And then the book gets a little high, big L literary where he, the, the white tiger disappears and Balram faints and he's reached a point where he's decided like his epiphany, he's going to be the white tiger and escape from the cage and his soul is going to, blah, blah. I read some literary critique analysis of that. And I was like, oh, that's right. Like if this was a side reading in high school, that would be the whole essay <laughs> right there. And the other time that he faints is when he sees in the book, it's his mom in the movie, it's his dad uh, on the pyre and the, the body is being burnt and the foot is curling up, which is very graphic. Uh, the foot is arching up as if it's like still fighting. And he he's kind of faced with this idea that like, oh, my God, there's like no escape except in death. And then you can fight it all you want. But the fire you know, the servanthood, the poverty, but it's going to get you. So here's the thing. In the book, some of the metaphors and some of the things were really bonk, bonk on the head. And in the movie kind of uh, either distilled it or moved away or, or didn't get into the super nitty gritty. And in some ways that was fine because, you know, we don't need it. But I feel like it lost a few things um, because the, there's this whole part in the book where he's talking about like the part of India that's on the ocean versus the part that's interior in the, in the darkness and, and with the river and it's the Ganges river. Ganges. 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 The Ganges river and how that's supposed to be like a river of life, blah, blah, blah. But it's like mud and it sucks you down and it swallows you whole and it's super polluted, like disgustingly polluted. And so well, India had cholera breakouts like very frequently because of how dirty the river was. Right. But we don't really get that in the movie as much. And the other big thing that not big, but a thing that we got in the book, he's, he's wandering around at one point and he finds these guys, there's like the lines between this part of the slum and this part of the construction and all of this stuff. And the worker guys are like lined up in a row taking a shit and there's like a row of them and they're going to leave those shit piles as a, like a barrier as a way of marking their territory this is the, the inside and the outside and here's this literal shit line this is the only tool we have it's our bodies it's very symbolic in the movie he comes across one random dude pooping in a field you don't really see that it's just like he's squatting and i'm fine yeah. that they didn't show like the poop but it doesn't really right. show the metaphor at all. It really doesn't. And then he takes his pants down. He like in the book, he joins in on the line and they all laugh in the movie. He is facing the man squatting with his pants down. But I feel like if you didn't read the book, you'd be like, what is happening? Yeah, that was completely <laughs> random and weird. <laughs> so yeah, that, that yeah. Uh, there was a couple moments like that where I was like, wow, it's a really good thing I read the book because I understand what this is. 
but I would say 95% of the movie worked perfectly well with not having read the book and was what the book was, you know? So I found his response to his nephew very chilling. Did you? And it's just, a you know, in the book, it's a little bit more explicit of, you know, if he becomes a problem, I know what to do with him. And in the movie, he's just like, oh, smart boy. He's getting mouthy. He's demanding things. Well, I think, again, in the book, it made it very clear that they were talking about, he asked, you know, do you miss your family? Like he's trying to feel out whether or not the kid has realized that like they've stole this money, they've run away and the entire family's dead. And the way that the kid is telling him, yeah, I know. And you better treat me good as being like, yo, I want some more ice cream. Like the kid is already becoming his own version of the white tiger. Like he's already manipulative and conniving in the movie. It, I don't think it was quite as clear that the kid was, was being that conniving. Does that, does that make sense? Cause he puts the newspaper down and then, you know, he says the thing and the kid's like, I want ice cream. And then, yeah, it's a little immediate yeah. for what's going on. Right. But the, Right. But I think that that the idea, though, is okay. So there's a couple things. One, one is he he chooses to take the child with him and he, he has a moment where he has to decide like he's killed Ashok. He's got the money. He's at the train station and he's like, if the kid's smart, he'll run or they'll kill him, whatever. And I totally thought he was going to leave the kid behind and not go back for the kid. And then he did. He went and he got the kid. And he even says, like, this could be my undoing. Like, they could catch me now because he, you know, went back. So, like, is that the author's way of telling us that he's not completely amoral? That he has some element, you know, some redeeming factor? Or is it that by taking the child with him, he is now setting up a, a hierarchical system where he's instantly at the top of that food chain before they even get to Bangalore, because now he, ha- he, you know, he can hit this kid. He can manipulate this kid and, and mistreat this child who owes him everything, you know? And, and it's, so it's, to me, it felt like a, like a perpetuating system, right? Self-perpetuating system, because he's like, okay, this is, I'm going to take the kid with me, not be- necessarily because I'm a good person, but because I want basically to have like somebody with me so that a i'm not by myself and b i can lord it over somebody else and start building my own little empire one little pawn at a time i have an interesting ending and there's a couple ways to view the ending so he's now the master and so he has his you know his nephew who's sort of servant not servant family not family he's in that kind of weird system where you know do you really fear your servants because they know everything about your family. They know all the intimacies. They could bribe you quite easily. And there are cases where that happens. Mm-hmm. And then you see his drivers. And is he the same kind of master that he took over from? And I would say no. Like he he tries to be very clear that he is a different kind of master. He says, they're my employers. I don't treat them like my family. I don't call them. I sign a contract. They sign a contract, blah, 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 blah. And then when one of his drivers does accidentally hit a person and kill a person he offers a job to the brother of the dead boy you know he goes to the family i'm working my taxi service after you know my taxi service killed your brother. but i mean it's something right you know and like i'm guessing that those jobs would still be difficult to get you'd have to learn and drive and you know like it, it's still a sign of corruption you're still paying off a family. oh for sure yeah no no question yeah. but but he sees it as as a as a not noble. I wouldn't say that he, I don't think he thinks of himself as noble, but he definitely sees it as a 
better relationship. Like he is better. He's a better type of master because it's not, it's more upfront. It's more um, apparent, you know, it's not as subtle. You're not playing the same roles, but that's the thing is it's different, but it's not, you know, he's, these are all the same things that his former master would say. You know, his former master would say, oh, no, we're enlightened. We don't do that. Right. But if you go back does. a couple generations and it's different. I feel like this is just the evolution of of that particular type of relationship. Is it less corrupt, though? Well, corrupt. Is it less traumatic? Is it less dangerous? Well, you had this kid die and then the person, like the brother, I mean, if somebody ran over your sister and said, well, you know, I'll give you a job. Wouldn't you hate that person? Me personally? Yes. <laughs> like that's dramatic. And it, it feels almost a way of like enslaving that family because I can give you this thing in order to buy your silence. And I now have, you know, this person who is obviously resentful. And it kind of goes back to, do you love them or loathe them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I found really interesting was in the movie, the very last shot, he's like, ah, I'm the master now, blah, blah, blah. And then he walks out of this, the, of the frame and you see his workers and they're just like dead eyes, like looking at you and you're like, Ooh, my God, <laughs> like something's going to happen. So are they white tigers that are coming up? Mm-hmm. Maybe, or maybe they're, maybe they're, maybe there's all it takes is one, it just takes one. So yeah, that's like, there are two ways to interpret this film and I, ambiguity is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So looking at these drivers, are they, are they other servants? Because he just confesses right in front of them. Oh, I killed my master. Are you willing to do that? And they're just like, uh-huh, because they don't matter because they're servants yeah. or are they white tigers ready to kind of right. build and up? And in the book, he doesn't do that whole thing. He doesn't go walking around in front of them bragging about how he got there. You know, that's not, that's not a thing that happened. So there was definitely a little bit of, of extra panache for, for the movie. Yeah. And he sees the premiere and the premiere's like, who the fuck are you? Like, I don't even check that email account. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like, that was hilarious. Yeah, he didn't actually send the letters in the book. He's just kind of like writing his memoirs. Well, we don't know because it just ends. I, we don't know. Okay. I, I thought it would be like a fun thing to have like the epilogue be, you know, like these letters were published, the, you know, because after he sends them, he was arrested because he freaking admits <laughs> all this stuff. Like, I mean, I'm with you. Probably didn't send it, but like, you know, as a framing, framing devices are hard, right? They're hard in novels. They're really hard in movies. As framing devices go, I did not mind this one that much. I felt like Balram is the totally the type of guy who wants to talk about himself. And he's so profound. He has so many important thoughts, Jennifer. If he could, he'd make a podcast. <laughs> but you also see the, I don't want to think groveling. There, there's the flattery that goes on that was very much of his servant class it's in the framing device the way he talks to the chinese premier oh well you very smart very wise you do this you do that you'll you'll enjoy this yeah i'm wondering if that's just like oh he because i think that's just again the hierarchical system like he knows that the premier's way over here he might have like come up to here those of you who can't see my hands, one hand is much higher than the other. Um, but, you know, like he knows that there are still people above him. And so how do you talk to the, the masters above you? You freaking grovel and tell them, you know, how wonderful they are. So I wanted to go back a little bit with the mud, um, the Ganges and the ocean. Okay. And this light, darkness, pure, impure thing. Mm-hmm. So 
part of the mud and the black ooze isn't that she just dies in the sewage. It's that, you know, this is part of karma and uh, Hinduism is that you're reborn and you're reborn and you're reborn, but nothing will change. They're always going to be in the sewage. He's always going to be stuck there. And it's not just his current life, it's his future lives, unless he makes a change. Everything that's outside of India, the ocean, is what's considered pure. You know, the American technologies, the outsourcing, all of this stuff is where India is heading. This is the good part. And yet it's just exploitive. It's massively exploitive. Mm -hmm. So even like the light is super exploitive. Yep. (laughs) Which, I mean, again, if you, if you have an entire culture that's, that is literally based on a, a, like such a severe hierarchical system, it makes sense that anything that's going to change is going to, you know, it's either, it's going to have to fit into that system. Either the things coming in are bad down here or they're good up here or they're good up here, but they're using the system, which is fucking corrupt and and bad to be up there right so yeah so it's a changing system but again it's the continuation of this corruption and there doesn't seem to be any hope for that to change no i i love the idea though that he was talking about democracy and he was like you know we don't have running water we don't have inside sanitation but we have democracy you know if it was up to me i'd (laughs) i'd do the sewage system first and then worry about democracy but i also like this point like Basically, I voted in all the elections because they said I did because they registered my votes. And this is a sad thing that they they didn't put in the movie. But like there's this whole thing about the political system and like how basically the village decides who the village is voting for. And it's super, super corrupt. And it's laid in. And like like one guy was like, you know what? I'm going to actually go and actually cast a vote. And they're like, oh, man, he's dead. Oh, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to walk. It's voting. Right. Here's the voting booth. I'm going to vote. And they're like, no, 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 no. We've already decided who you voted for. No, I'm going to vote. And then he, you know, they kill him because he dared to vote even though this is a democracy and i think that's fascinating and terrifying at the same time and we have and it's very real i was yes i was going to say we have voter suppression issues and and gerrymandering here in the u.s but it's not nearly to the extreme but you're kind of like oh my god there but for the you know maybe the media i don't know and like a different cultural idea go we because like that is that's a very real very real and very oh, scary thing. We used to thing. have that kind of system with Tammany Hall, mm-hmm. you know, and um, on a local level, uh, the mayor of Orange Cove was going into voting booths and telling people, no, this is how you're going to vote. That was kind of the local scandal. Not great. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about Pinky Madam. Okay. So first off, the actress herself is really fascinating. Uh, she's considered like one of the top 100 uh, most influential women um in time magazine she does a lot of stuff for feminism she's you know this incredible actress she was going to study um like aeronautic engineering until she won like the world beauty pageant and got all these film offers wow yeah and she's the executive producer of this that i knew because she'd read the book she has a whole thing about like, the book was really important profound and then she heard they were making a movie and she was like i want to get involved which was awesome I think she's really fascinating as a person, um, but as her role, I thought she was in some ways made to be more sympathetic because when they hit the child in the book, you know, it's heavily implied it's a child, but she's like, it was a dog, right? It was a dog. It wasn't a child. It was a dog. And she's hysterical and like her husband just like holds her face down and covers her face with like this cloth so she stops screaming. As much as she wants to be egalitarian, she's still part of either a savior mentality of 
I'm going to help this poor little guy while I'm also abusing him. Mm -hmm. But it's still the the privilege context. I I have a really great quote and I'll link it in our thing, but it says, um, Chopra Jonas is especially persuasive as a woman conscious enough of her privilege to make empty apologies for it, but still willing to cruelly wield it when convenient. And I was like, that's a great quote. Yep. That's literally pinky madam right there. And, and again, like I said, more so in the movie and in, in the book, she wasn't quite as fleshed out. Um, they, they gave her a little bit more to do in the movie, which made, makes it a more complicated and interesting character for sure. Yeah. And so she had her background of, you know, I don't exactly come from privilege at the same time. She does come from privilege comparatively yeah exactly i love that because they added that in the movie they added that she was a chiropractic doctor and you know in the movie because in the book she they didn't say anything about that and and also they added that she had grown up in new york and her parents owned a bodega and you know her mom had been you know held up at gunpoint and all this stuff and she's like and i escaped therefore you can too <laughs> it's like oh my god <laughs> Yeah, totally not the same thing, lady. <laughs> and then her paying him, like giving him money before she leaves. And I love this whole idea that he has, like, you know, a rich person's going to give you a hundred and then they're like, well, you're poor. You'll probably be happy with 80. Well, if you'd be happy with 80, how about seven? You know what I mean? Like it just, it goes down and that's like this idea. And so the, the amount of money she gives him this random amount and he's like, how much was she going to give me? And then she changed her mind and that just fuels his fire a little bit more. I I get the impression that Pinky would have understood why he killed Ashok for sure. I mean, she wouldn't probably have condoned it, but I, I think she would have maybe understood it in a way that, that, you know, book Pinky would not have. Yeah. But I just found her character really fascinating for those reasons, because in America, that would be this terrible story to carry around going, I watched my mother get held up and then she still worked. You know, that's, that's our ugliness. But it's a totally different system and it's not comparable. Nope. And that's why I see a lot of you know people saying, oh, I'm like you. I have this past. And it's not even comparable. Let's see if there's anything else that I wanted to hit on before we... You touched um, on this a little bit mm -hmm. about how the movie plays up an almost homoerotic element between Ashok and Baram. Mm -hmm. And it's in the book. It's just it's less published. in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And he calls him his ex. Oh, they're, they're really friendly. And it's it's more like the line where he says, my ex. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it, it's implying a lot heavier okay so yeah. i i wondered about that because when i say my ex i mean romantic but i thought maybe that's just like my ex master by like, like maybe that's just like a, a phrase like an indian phrase that doesn't translate but like it would kind of like dipping your beak is the euphemism for yeah. yeah okay so men have beaks audience um and they dip them and when you dip your beak that is that is sex so you've dipped your beak into your wife which by the way is a really weird to me to my uh very western american cultural california middle class white lady way of thinking of it who's also terrified of birds right of birds yeah i was like ah <laughs> <laughs> this book's gonna make me even more lesbian than I already am. Yukons <laughs> and finches are going. That would hurt. <laughs> well, okay, dipping. Uh, okay, coming in and out. I get the dip. It, it, okay, whatever. It's just. It's a really. It is a foreign concept to me. But I was like, but because he uses it 
consistently and other people do too i'm like this is obviously like a thing that is a cultural phrasing that i'm just not personally familiar with so i thought that x might be the same thing and then i looked it up and no so <laughs> yes it's just his thing it's just this particular author slash character saying my ex. Well, I didn't think of like that they did have a physical relationship and that that's never there, but that their relationship was so just tightly entwined. Oh, I was going to say at one point, I felt like there was a period after the ex, which like EX period, which made me think it was like a thing, but now I just found it and it's because it's the end of a sentence. So never mind. My ex period. <laughs> So yeah, um, yeah, definitely more in in the in the movie they they have more of a bond. They play video games and they listen to their music and and he you know. But in both cases, he's like, I got to take care of him like a wife. You know, I'll cook for him and make sure he gets his vegetables and like doesn't drink too much. And you know, the service knows his master from mouth to anus. Yes, well, you know. Oh, uh, there was a lot of just physicality in this book. Yeah. And a lot of it is very like that's how you diss somebody. Mm-hmm. You're so unimportant. I'm going to turn around and just stink your way. Jennifer, was this book and movie were they worth your time? Absolutely worth your time. The book was dedicated to the person who ended up directing it. Yeah, so they're both friends, and yeah. Yes, I I will say. Because the movie is such a faithful adaptation, it is it is almost like a not shot for shot because it's not a movie to movie, but it is it is very, very, very close. You get the exact same story. So if you are more comfortable reading, read. And if you are more comfortable watching, watch. But you will get basically the same experience, I feel, with a, but there's a couple of little tiny changes. But ultimately, I feel like it's making the same point. It's doing it in pretty much the same way. Of course, the book, because it is a book, it has more space and it has some really great language and some really great metaphors and and the writing is superb. So, but if you are just interested in the straight up story, the the movie has it, it has everything. Yeah, the movie has some great visuals to it as well that just help bring the impact between the the disparate societies yeah so i'm so glad that i randomly saw the preview on netflix (laughs) yeah i'm this was fun thank you so much jennifer thank you paleo it was your idea and it's been really it's been enjoyable and just part of like broadening my own horizons of books i wouldn't have read and having to do deep dives yeah i think that this is definitely a book that i might have been like oh Ooh, that looks interesting. Maybe I'll pitch it to book club. And then if our book club read it, we would have read it. And if our book club didn't read it, I probably wouldn't have read it on my own. This one in particular. Uh, so. So, Kalia, happy 50th episode. Happy 50th episode. I know we're going to do a whole retrospective and talk about our favorites and, and stuff. And I'm like trying really hard to remember. Did we do? What did we do? I can't remember. <laughs> but yes. Yay, 50 episodes. So not bad for like a random hey you know it'd be fun (laughs) and thank you listeners those of you who've listened to all 50 you know there's probably two of you out there who've listened to all 50 and for those of you who uh treat this more like a buffet and sample when it looks appealing thank you also for listening i appreciate it please go and uh, fill out our listener feedback survey so that we can make sure that we're making the show that you want to listen to if what you want is what i want to do caveat and um 
Yeah. Okay. That that's that. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> I know he, I don't have permission, but I would love to just release this as a video on YouTube. The the unfiltered, non-edited version of our podcast with all the yeah. There's a little fairy that comes in and dances about. <laughs> Every now and then, there's a cat that gets involved. She's sleeping now, but yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'll have you know tons of times where I'm moving one cat over uh, from the uh, side, and it's like the same cat. It's a different cat. Clown car lap of cats. Okay. Anyway. <laughs>